This is HPR episode 1811 entitled Life and Times of a Geek Part 2 and is part of the series How I Found Linux. It is hosted by Dave Morris and is about 43 minutes long. The summary is part 2 of my personal story of experiences with computers. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hello everyone, this is Dave Morris. Today I want to tell you the next instalment of my personal story, which I've entitled Life and Times of a Geek. In the last part of the story, I told you of my experiences as an undergraduate student at Aberystwyth University, where I started using a mainframe computer and learned to program in the Algol 60 language. Today I want to talk about the next stage, where I left Aberystwyth and became a postgraduate student at the University of Manchester. I had a wonderful three years at Aberystwyth, and uh, I think I said a little bit about it last time. It's a lovely location by the sea, with with access to all sorts of great areas and landscapes, perfect for a biology student. My degree involved a fair bit of uh, zoology and of botany in the first stages, Um, and then specialised later. So we went out and about quite a lot. I could go into a lot of detail about the the forays to the the tidal areas outside the university, looking for strange creatures when the tide had gone out. Um, I could talk about the Welsh woodlands, searching for fungi, about the mountains, climbing the mountains to look for strange things, the salt marshes, the bogs. There's quite a lot of boggy areas. Um, in that part of the world. I could tell you about some of my fellow students, like the, the one who used to bring her pet jackdaw to lectures, along with a border collie. And uh, it was always quite disruptive when, when they came along. Or I could tell you about the day that uh, a friend and I were trying to do something with a rat, which was incredibly fierce and ran in, jumped out of the cage into the lab, caused 30 students um, to jump on chairs and tables or run out of the room. But maybe that should be in another thing. This is Hacker Public Radio, after all. Not Zoology Public Radio. Anyway, suffice it to say that as I got to my last year and we needed to specialise, my interests were in the area of animal behaviour. I did a project on memory in goldfish, and uh, I had to train them to perform a task, then apply a drug to them, which... uh, prevented the formation of long-term memory and proved that they had forgotten the task while the control group, which hadn't had this drug, hadn't forgotten it. So I got a pretty good degree in 
uh, honours degree, I should say. These things are important. <laughs> I don't know why really, but there you go. I got a degree anyway in zoology in the summer of 1972 and then was faced with what to do next. I'd considered developing the programming skills that I'd been using in some sort of biological context and I applied to a few places with the idea that I could take some sort of further degree which involved the two possibly moving into the direction of computer science but it was very hard to find anybody who wanted a zoologist who'd done some programming dabbled in it a bit and uh, so I think Maybe I should have worked harder to to achieve that, but but uh, I didn't. Uh, I didn't do that. I started looking for a, a possible place to do a postgraduate degree. Um, I was offered a place to study for a PhD in the animal behaviour group at the zoology department at the University of Manchester. Now, funding in those days was by grant, and I'd had a, a grant from my local education authority, which is the way it was done. I had that for my first degree. So I needed funding for my PhD, but I couldn't find a grant to do it. So the only real choice was to put my studies on hold and uh, go and see what I could do to, to fund myself. So I headed home and tried to find a job to do that. Once I was back home, I found a job by the simple expedient of knocking on the door of various companies. I think I went to the what they then called the labour exchange. I found a job in a local plastics factory where I'd worked before during vacations and ended up as a labourer doing shift work, earning the princely sum of 50 pence an hour. Seems ridiculous now, but there you go. It was pretty much the going rate for this type of thing, unskilled labour. And by this method I managed to accumulate enough to fund myself for my first year of a PhD. While I was researching stuff about to, to do this talk I happened to be going through various files where I found that I actually kept my employment contract uh, with this um, company United Glass it was Closures and Plastics Limited and uh, I've included a copy of my employment contract basic rate of 0.4167 pence per, per hour which <laughs> And a, a shift pay supplement. It's pretty amazing, eh? So, uh, average pay per week, £19.71. And it was two shifts. I did two shifts. And I had to work on Saturday mornings, too. So, uh, yeah. It's okay, though. I was actually in the... Just in case you wonder why it says your department is grinding. <laughs> it looks great, now. This was the bit of the company where waste plastic and um, misprinted stuff was recycled. There was a big machine that ground it all down and then another device that melted it back into pellets so it could be used again in the uh, in the moulding machines, the blow moulding machines. That was heavy, noisy, boring work, as I've written here. But uh, it was OK. It, uh, it got me where I needed to be. So... In the summer of 1973, I was in the city of Manchester, at the University of Manchester, one of the largest universities in the UK, and I was there to take a PhD, Doctor of Philosophy degree, doing this research on animal behaviour, as I mentioned. My research topic was to be looking at how 
animals decide how to feed, where to look for food, how much effort to expend finding and eating it, that sort of thing. At the time, this area was referred to... It was it was a growing area, actually. It was an area that, that a lot of study was being put into, and it was referred to as feeding strategies or optimal foraging and various other names. This area grew into the early 80s and became what's now known as, known as behavioural ecology and uh, mathematical methods, particularly ideas from economics, were used to describe and predict animal behaviour. And as I mentioned in the notes, in a recent programme on the, on the BBC, Radio 4, there's a series called In Our Time, where they did a great job of covering this subject, interviewing some of the... I had a roundtable discussion with some of the, the movers and shakers in this area. I'm hoping that... Um, if you're interested in this, uh, that uh, you can see the uh, the episode and I've given you a link to it in case you, you, can, you can do so. So here I was, a member of the zoology department, which was then a separate part of the university, a separate entity. It later became subsumed into the School of Biological Sciences, but that was well after my time. It was an old department from being established in 1870 and it had had it looked <laughs> the rooms in the labs had that sort of feel which was nice it was all oak panelled and uh, quite old benches and, and that sort of thing in 1973 the department was in a beautiful old building down the road or actually adjoining connected to the Manchester Museum and uh, as a postgraduate student we were given keys to let us into the building at all sorts of hours that we needed to do work and we also had access to the museum which was quite an interesting concept the museum was quite a nice place it's 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 quite still going very strong it's been refurbished quite spectacular um and in those days it included live animals amongst its uh, its various um, exhibits which is unusual for a museum so my PhD supervisor <clears throat> had two other students who were starting at the same time that I was, also doing research in animal behaviour. Two of us were studying the, the Barbary dove, which I've referenced in the notes uh, and as our experimental animal, and the other one was using a common marmosette. So we were often spending our time in the animal house in the basement of an old building near to the, the zoology department. The usual way that um, postgraduate students worked in those days, at least in Manchester, was that uh, you started your research project by doing a, a literature review and then writing it up for assessment. I think this was a sort of filtration process to to uh, pick out the, the real duffers from the from the, uh, the more sensible ones and. Um, so in my particular case it meant through it meant reading through any of the relevant journals that uh, covered my particular subject in the university library but particularly we needed to read through a thing called current contents which is a, a magazine a small journal thing which I can't remember how often it came out maybe weekly which um contained a summary of of all of the publications produced since the last one 
which uh, you could find in peer-reviewed science journals. So you didn't actually see the paper itself, you just got a title and a quick summary. If it looked interesting, then you could either get a photocopy of it through the interlibrary loans, which um, cost money sometimes, I think. Well, I think the university covered a fair bit of it. Um, Or if that wasn't possible, you could write to the author. Of course, addresses were were published willy-nilly in this publication, which seems unheard of nowadays. And you could write to them with a with a physical letter on a bit of paper to say to ask for a reprint, and then they would, if they if they wished, and mostly they did, they would send uh, a copy of their their paper to you. And this was a slow and laborious uh, process. Though, as I recall, whenever a new paper was came came along in the post from somebody who you'd requested it from, it was quite an exciting event. You know, you'd want to. This was this was really bleeding edge of the the subject. Obviously, the purpose of doing this literature review was to become highly conversant with the subject and as up to date as possible with everything that was going on. And this required the keeping of a good collection of references to papers and reprints. And the way to do that in these days was by keeping a filing system. So I started by keeping a box file full of uh, index cards, kept them in alphabetical order. They referenced the the papers, the authors, the summary of the of the contents, and that type of thing. There wasn't really much else to do uh, in those days. My supervisor introduced us to a slightly more advanced technology. He gave gave his three PhD students a bunch of edge notch cards. And these have holes punched all around the edges, and then. Um, you, you can get a special tool which cuts out, cuts a notch over the hole. Um, we didn't have this, we just used scissors. And this uh, differentiated them from other cards. And the principle is that the the cards relevant to a particular topic, and you, you organise this the way you, you see fit, Cards, the relevant cards will be notched in a particular position. And so when you when a deck of cards is put together passing a needle or a metal rod through a relevant hole and lifting out all the cards which didn't have notches in would mean that the ones that were left were the ones which were relevant to a search. So this is a very sort of primitive searching technique. It could be a little bit more sophisticated in that you could put more than one needle or rod through the through the holes and lift out cards which matched several criteria at once. This was a sort of mechanical database I don't think any of us actually used this to any great extent because it seemed far too much of a of a fiddly thing to do. We just kept stuff on regular index cards that you could buy in any stationers. Now, the University of Manchester was particularly strong on computing, uh, had been for quite some time. Just across the road from the zoology department where I was was the uh, school of computer science what was to become the school of computer science this was the a newly built building called the kilburn building which was sort of cool and new looking doesn't look anything very special now there's a picture of it in the notes um and uh, this contained computer science but on the ground floor it contained the university of manchester regional computer center which was colloquially known as umruk this 
computer centre was one that had been government funded to provide high power computer facilities for universities in the region. So UMRUK provided facilities, services for all of the universities in the, uh, the north west of uh, England. So that was Sal- Salford University just down the road in Manchester, Liverpool, Keele University, Lancaster. Um, there's a similar one in London, the ULCC, University of London Computer Centre, which was another another large one. There was really only two very large ones. There's another one at Edinburgh, but it wasn't quite as big as I recall. There wasn't a tremendous amount of inter-computer networking going on at this time. People who uh, wanted to use UMRUK who were not in Manchester, not, not at Manchester University, could get access to it through slow modem links mostly I think and uh, they had uh, remote job entry facilities at the at the satellite universities I'll talk a little bit more about these later in uh, in the next episode of this I think because I found myself at one of these universities and uh, was able to uh, investigate this this stuff so it wasn't much in the way of networking I think is really the point at this time in the early 70s, UMRCC had a control data corporation, CDC 7600, which was pretty much a state-of-the-art computer, mainframe computer. It was front-ended, this particular one, by an ICL 1906A, which I'll talk a little bit more about later. The CDC 7600 quite an interesting machine. It was one of the machines designed by Seymour Cray, who also designed the Cray 1 later on. And uh, it was considered to be the fastest supercomputer in the world at that particular point. I don't remember much about what it ran in terms of an operating system. I think it was something called Scope, but I, I have had great difficulty finding any records of this any stuff I had from those days I've thrown away so I don't remember much it certainly was there was very little interactive access to it as I recall there was interaction available to uh, through other machines but basically it was a big number cruncher sitting in the background that uh, you got access to through other things the 1906A, the ICL machine, I know ran uh, an operating system called George. I'm not sure which version, George 3 or 4, I don't I don't recall, but it probably was George 4 because it, this model had paging memory, which George 4 was designed for. I'm going to say more about the George operating system later, so I won't uh, go into a lot of detail here. So, pretty obviously... Being a, a computer geek in a in a biology department, I was keen to get access to to these machines. Of course, I could as a as a student, and uh, soon started using them and learning about them. The main workhorse, of course, was the seventy six hundred, since this was the big number cruncher. Though the ICL nineteen oh six A was also a pretty powerful machine in its own right but was largely used as a, as a gateway, uh, by me anyway. As before, programs had to be written on coding sheets and then punched onto, onto cards, and 
the main difference was that at uh, Umruk uh, you could do this yourself if you wanted to or you could send in coding sheets and it would be done by by staff whose whose job was data preparation as it was called there were teletypes available to us connected to the ICL machine but I won't talk about them just now um, I'll leave that till later maybe the next uh, instalment I want to enlarge on this there's a lot to say about this so I've put a picture of the IBM card punches from those days what we normally did in those days was we would write things by hand on uh, coding sheets hand them in to be punched up and we would ask for them to be checked they would go through the card punch and then they'd go through a, a, a checking another person would, would run through another device which was effectively they retyped it all over again but it didn't it didn't punch them again it just checked for for errors there would also be sometimes I think there was a machine that did the interpretation that is the they typed the the contents of the card on the top of the card so you could see what to, what it was and there were things like card sorters if you happened to drop all your cards on the floor and uh, you had gone to the uh, the trouble of asking for them to be numbered sequentially you have a number punched into in the um from column, I can't remember, 78 onwards maybe? No, that wouldn't be enough, would it? 76, 75, I can't remember. Uh, anyway, the tail end of the card would have a number on it, sequential number, and that would be generated by a device as part of the production process. Um, if you'd done that, you had a big deck, and you dropped them, then you could ask them to, to be collated, and they'd be sorted back into into order again. One of the things that fascinated me about the computer centre was the viewing gallery. Uh, access to the to the Umruk part of the building was through the, the ground, a ground floor entrance. And on the way in, you walked through a corridor with a glass wall looking into the computer room. And in it was all of the hardware, all the, the mainframes, the tape drives, the card readers, the line printers, and so on. There were computer operators in and out of there, putting cards in, taking printouts off, etc. You could see them, they wore white coats. To <laughs> Seems very odd now in these days. There are two videos I discovered, which are available on YouTube, that I've linked to. They were made a bit later on in the 80s. At the time these videos were made, there were two 7600s, and the ICL 1906A had been replaced by an Amdahl machine as a front end and um, you can see that there's quite a lot of superfluous stuff in those videos but you can see quite a lot of, of views into that machine room which is big um, and it's not that different from the way it looked in the, the 70s when I was there one of the things that fascinated me about the building was it was heated by the, the computers at that stage they had uh, I think they had freon cooling or something on the on the big machines but uh, the waste heat was used to uh, to warm the building and um, I was there during the the miners strike in the in the 70s where there was a the government put a three-day week in operation where a lot of uh, businesses shut down people were made to turn off their lights and turn off electrical equipment while well, Umruk was not shut down because uh, it was 
more than just a, a building with computers in it was actually driving a lot of compute a lot of um uh, facilities a lot of services for universities in the, the northwest of england so it kept going and the that was one of the few buildings that was warm because uh, it uh, it was heated from these machines i remember people coming in and complaining about the waste of heat in there but uh, it wasn't really a waste it was actually quite an efficiently designed building so at this point i found that the programming languages available to me were alcohol 60 was there as before and i did use it it was a it was different um it was this was on the 7600 on the ctc machine algol was pretty much a common language across many systems in those days but um, I'd also discovered Fortran which was available there and uh, started thinking that that this would be useful to me as I tried to to carry on with my research not having anything specific in mind in the first instance I thought it would be worth at least learning the basics of of the language so I, I taught myself Fortran found it to be very odd compared to Algol 60. Statements have to go into particular positions on a card, start in column 7 up to column 72. Yeah, 73 and 7 to 80, the ones I didn't remember before, are the, the, the columns used for sequence numbers. If you want, you didn't have to do that, but you could do. If a statement had to be continued onto a second card, then, then you needed to get something punched any character punched into column six and that was a continuation column and columns one to five of the card contained a numeric label which uh, was used for um, if you used a go-to statement that was the target of the go-to and it also contained um, numbers for uh, format statements which i'll talk about in a moment if column one contained a c a letter c then that made the card a comment card and this was Fortran 4. Um, you can see an example of Fortran 4 program in the Wikibook site. That it was quite primitive compared to what Fortran became. But this this was like sort of the earliest version of, of Fortran, I think, or at least one of the earliest versions. One of the weird things about Fortran was the I/O stuff. This this was in my opinion. You can see format statements in this example that define input and output. All of the format statements are collected at the top in the example on the Wikibook site. Though most people that I, well, most programs that I saw, they were placed after the write statements they were associated with, or indeed the read statements. So I've got an example just to talk a little bit about what it what it does. And um, in my example in the in the notes, I've got a format statement which has got a label of 601 on the front of it, and uh, it defines how stuff is to be written. It's followed by a write statement, and the write statement is followed by, is the word write, followed by a bracketed pair of numbers. The first one is the output device, which the actual devices tended to be sort of semi-standard, or they were, they could be configured on the particular machine you were working on. I don't remember much about this now. I know there were job control statements that you could put around your program that said 
associate channel X with a file or the line printer or something of that sort. Anyway, this one is writing to, to, to channel 6, device 6, I suppose you'd call it. And the second number is 601, which is the format statements to be used. This is then followed by four variables, A, B, C, and area. Then the format statement that does it, that, that controls it, is uh, a bracketed list of things. The things are separated by commas. The first one says 4H space A equals space comma. So that's that's a thing known as a um, Hollerith format. And this was a way in which you simply defined some text that you wanted to be written out. The 4... For the H means this is Hollerith, this is this is some text. Hollerith was one of the inventors of punch cards, I think. And quite why H was chosen for this, I don't know. Anyway, I'm sure there's a there's a deep history there here which I don't know about. The form defines the number of characters that are to be written out. So we've got a space, an A, an equals and another space. So that's what a what a Hollerith statement does. Then the next thing is i5. Now i5 is an integer, you'd have guessed that I'm sure, which will be five uh, columns wide. And that should correspond to the first variable that's being output. And after that 5h, two spaces, b equals space, then another i5 and so on i'll leave you to uh, to examine it in a bit more detail but um the real the real point of it is that there are i formats for integer numbers there are f formats for floating point numbers so f10.2 means 10 columns wide with two decimal places the hollerith thing you had always had to count the number of characters there that followed the h and was always a pain so one of the things that always used to catch me out, and I've seen so many people fall into this one, so I thought I'd just mention it here. The first character defined in a format statement when you were outputting stuff had a special significance. So these were the days when you were using line printers for your output, and it actually had an effect on other devices as well, but let's think about line printers. Line printers received strings of characters which are in most cases 132 columns wide most line printers were that wide they needed to be told what to do prior to printing a line so a line was printed on the fancy printers all in one go there were there were there were print 132 print positions all of which went bam and printed simultaneously pretty much and um they the first character of the line that was sent has this special significance to indicate how to position the paper prior to printing the line. So there were various characters that had particular meaning. So a space as the first character meant to advance to a new line before output. A zero in that position advances two lines, so you've got double spaced output. A one advances to the top of a new page and a plus character won't advance at all so you could overprint so the first thing that you wrote in an, an output statement would not be visible on the paper because it was interpreted by the the firmware of the printer to to determine how to position the paper and one of the pitfalls that 
that I certainly fell into and saw many, many, many students do this and later on in my career using Fortran was to output a number as the first thing where the first digit um, was interpreted as this printer printer feed thing. If it was, you know, 2 to 0 to uh, to 9 or excluding the 1, then it would have certain effects. Sometimes there were other effects like... Um, I can't remember them now, 2, 3 or whatever, might have controlled the number of lines it skipped or something like that. It depended on the printer, I think. But the convention, the standard convention, was if you if you had a number which began with a digit 1, then every line would be thrown, would, would start on a new page. So you, the, the printer would could be seen throwing huge amounts of paper out, putting one line of numbers on the top of each page which would drive the operators completely nuts. You know, they'd go through a whole box of paper just to print something out because you'd forgotten to do this business of starting the um, the output line with a with a space. So, very, very strange stuff. It seems very odd by today's standards. One of the reasons why you'd want to use Fortran, apart from the fact that it's a pretty damned efficient in the scale of things, it's a very efficient language, was that there were many, many libraries available. So, uh, in particular, the numerical algorithms group, known as NAG, had a library which did lots and lots of numerical stuff. I've given a link to uh, to their current incarnation. So it had things like random number generators and statistical methods and man- matrix manipulation things in it. So you'd want to use these to, to avoid reinventing that particular wheel, obviously. So that was the reason why I was tending to to use Fortran, so I could uh, do this type of stuff. So also around that time, I don't remember precisely when I started getting into it, I discovered the language Pascal. It had only recently come out. It was only two or three years old. It's quite similar to Algol 60. And in particular, the... One of the early implementations of it was written for the CDC machines. Not the 7600, I think there was a precursor to that that it was written for, but obviously it was available on the 7600. I got hold of the very early book uh, written by Jensen and Wirth. Wirth was the inventor of Pascal. And this was, a I just remembered now, it was a very odd book which looked like it had been printed on a on a typewriter or even a teleprinter and um, somebody had gone through and handwritten in various bits and then they published it um, I've got another book here in the house which was a later book in the in the 80s I think it was which uh, also about Pascal which also is, looks like it's printed on a teletype and it seemed to, there seemed to be a thing about cheaply produced books produced in that sort of way in, uh, in, in that era wrong with that but it's just something you tend not to see quite so much i don't seem to have the jensen and Wirth book anymore i think i must have lent it to somebody and uh, and it never came back or possibly i i'm so amazingly untidy it's lurking under a pile of books somewhere or other in a corner somewhere shame because i would have liked to put up a photocopy of it uh, a picture of it in the in the notes anyway pascal was uh, an interesting language at, at the time because it had some quite innovative ideas in it. Even though it's similar to Algol 60 in many ways, had some advancements which uh, which Algol 60 didn't. I did learn how to use it, so I taught myself how to how to do stuff with it, and 
wrote some programs in it, but it it didn't seem to be very practical in relation to Fortran. There were no libraries available for it at that time, and uh, you couldn't do many of the things that you would have expected to be able to do from the the design. I thought I'd just digress briefly to, to talk about Pascal. I won't go into a huge lot of detail because that could be a whole series in itself. One of the weird things about early Pascal was that um, when you declared stuff in it, the, the whole the program started with the the um, statement program and, the, and a name, and then was followed by declarations. And the declarations had to be in a particular order. Labels, you had to define your labels, which were targets of go-to statements, though you were strongly discouraged from using go-to in Pascal. It's meant to be a structured language, therefore no go-to. Then there were constants where with identifiers which had permanent values associated with them. You couldn't change constants once you'd declared them. There were types which allowed you to define new data types. Variables which uh, identifiers which are of the various types, standard types and ones that you'd created earlier. And then functions which were subroutines that return a value and procedures that subroutines that don't return a value and they had to be in this order these restrictions were lifted in later versions of pascal but uh, that's the way it was when i first encountered it you can define types based on existing types in pascal so i've got an example where there's a, a type byte which is being defined as an integer in the range 0 to 255 and there's a, a subrange declaration 0.255 available so you you could define subranges of the type integer this particular one was pascal also contained sets which was something of an innovation at the time nothing else had this capability so i've given an example here of a variable declaration of a set capable of holding any lowercase letters so it's um the name of the variable letter set i've called it which is declared as set of a that's an a in quotes dot dot z in quotes so it's defined as being able to hold anything in that set and then you can do expressions like if a in letter set then so a is in quotes again so you it's a quite an efficient way of determining whether a set a a certain value was in a set and there were other other things that you could do unions and and that type of thing all the various set operations that you that exist in the language and that's actually quite powerful there were issues with the implementation of this in the early days it wasn't possible to define sets containing very large numbers of members since underneath a set was defined as a as a sort of bit um array of bits so you you it would be represented as a byte so you could have eight, eight you could have eight bits in there uh or a word depending on what your word length was or a long word or something of that sort different lengths of words but there would be hardware limits in most cases to how big these things were and there was an assumption that the the thing representing the set implementing the set perhaps could be loaded into a re- into a register and um, bits could be then be checked or set or unset or whatever within that uh, that data um, structure so sounds great it looks good but the implementations are a little bit 
lacking at that stage because I tried to use it and found no, it wouldn't do what I wanted to do. Can't remember exactly what I tried to do, but certainly found that there were limitations. And there was also capability to define more complex data types called uh, records in Pascal. This is similar to the way that uh, you could define similar things in, in C, for example. So I've got an example here of defining a type called dates, which is defined as a record. Um, a record begins with the word record and ends with an end. And in it, there are three uh, numerical items. One is called day, which is a sub-range of integer in the range 1 to 31. Month, which is another sub-range in the range 1 to 12. And year, which is another sub-range of integer in the range 0 to 9999. Just as an aside there, you'll see that statements are separated in Pascal with the semicolon. Pascal was quite fussy about, probably still is to some extent, fussy about pointing out that these were statement separators. They weren't, this wasn't a thing that showed the end of a statement, it was merely a separator. So you weren't supposed to put one at the end of um, the the last um, element in a record. So you see the 9999 is not followed by a semicolon. It wasn't actually wrong I don't know why anybody made such a fuss about it, to be honest with you. But it's a bit like uh, you don't put a comma after the last thing in the list if you're writing English. So uh, it's, it's that sort of thinking that went into it. And in my example, there's a, a, a variable t called today, which is set to defined as, I should say, um, a type, the type we just declared, dates. So you could then access elements of this today record. I think I'm not going into detail on that. You can find quite a lot of useful information about the structure of Pascal in the Wikipedia article I've pointed to. Um, so if you want to dig deeper into Pascal, then you can get get to it, at least have a look at it, check the flavour of the language through that route. Again, there were issues with data types like this um, in early early iterations of Pascal. For example, you could declare files. You can say a file, uh, declare a file which contains date records. So the syntax was something like file of dates. That would be acceptable. But when it came to actually implementing that, if you say, okay, here's a file of dates, I want now to open it and write stuff to it and read stuff back, there were issues in whether the um, underlying operating system could actually implement these things in a sensible way. And there were certainly issues with some of these uh, file types and data types within them being really difficult to, uh, to implement and not available in some in instances of Pascal. All these sort of wrinkles were there in the early days. They mostly smoothed out as the language developed. And Pascal became popular for teaching, which is where it was it was originally designed for and later became much more effective as a as a language as it matured and the definition changed and better more comprehensive implementations became available i didn't use pascal much at this time but uh, later on in my career made pretty heavy use of it for many years actually so i'll talk a bit more about pascal later on so that's pretty much it for this episode. This has got us from Aberystwyth to 
the guts of the uh, computer systems in Manchester. I'll talk a bit more about this, uh, the computer systems and what I did with them in the next episode. But otherwise, that's us for this time. Okay, goodbye. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.